105 Monday afternoon. I'm Eddie Aragon, The Rock of Talk on AM 1600, KIVA, ABQ.FM, and rockoftalk.com, 550-5500. Well, uh, we're going to have kind of a different show today. i got to tell you, we got D-Dowd Muska. You're here. Dowd, am, I, am I here? I'm, I am here. I am here. <laughs> uh, we are not on video today, so I thought we would kind of take care of, you know, first things first. Uh, and then we got Rudy. Rudy, you here? Hello. Oh, yeah. Hi. I'm pointing. I'm waving at a camera oh, that doesn't exist. Hi, Rudy. Well, yeah, it doesn't <laughs> doesn't exist today. So, um, okay. So there's this whole article that came out yesterday in the Albuquerque Journal. Has me running for mayor. All that. Let me kind of uh, just dispel any rumors right here because I got to tell you, this is it's really really cool and nice that all of you guys have such great ideas and high ideas about me. And want me to run for this and want to run for that and want to run for all of these things. And so I went down and I went down to the city of Albuquerque and I took out the, um, the, the mayorship stuff. And I looked at this and I'm like, you know, okay, I, I, I didn't feel bad about it. <laughs> you look at the paperwork. Uh, today I had a meeting with uh, the, count, the city of Albuquerque, looked at the, you know, the information. Glad they're doing it electronically. I think that's fine. And it uh, looks really good. And I said, oh, I don't want the booklets. I just want to go ahead and do it this way. And, you know, I, I have to tell you, you know, when you're looking at these races and you're looking at everything, and Jessica Dyer wrote an article without any of my input and then proceeded to just, you know, say that I'm I'm running. Well, I'm not officially running um, or anything. I just made a visit downtown to the city of Albuquerque and just sort of left it at that. I got to tell you, um, I'm not interested in political office, given what I've done here in these last two times. I think I've done a good job exposing it, and I think we're going to you know, push out some information that just shows just how bad Albuquerque is. And you guys got to change it. I'm just going to tell you right now, you have to change this for yourself. Not one person can save it, okay? There's, and it's not going to be Eddie Aragon, I can assure you of that much, all right? I'm not going to go out there and save the city and save the state and put myself out there. And, you know, I've got my own life to live, too. And I want you all to know how much I like and appreciate uh, your attention to the radio station and what we do. And, you know, but I'm a, I run a business. I run a radio station. We have advertisers. We have been on the air every single day during COVID-19. And we love it. We love our job. I love my job. We love what we do. This is a joy daily. And it's not a joy when I have to start thinking about other things. Like, oh my gosh, really? I have to I have to lose to a guy like Mark Moores? I mean, seriously, in any other place, I would have won. I have to lose to a guy like Steve Pierce? Uh, in any other race, I would have absolutely beat those guys. But that's not what God wants for me. That's not what I'm interested in. They can have their swamp. Uh, the parties on the both sides can have their swamp and do what they do. Okay, I don't. I I showed exactly what what was there, and the same old nasty people who are involved in the party, they can continue to have their party. I don't care about it. I I really don't. I'm just you know done dealing with that, <laughs> whatever that is. I mean the bad behavior, whatever is going on. Like, I am the most straightforward person that there is. And and the people who make up lies about me, like, uh, you know, Pete Dinelli wouldn't even take my call. So then you can give me a call instead of write all this crap that you want about me. Pete Dinelli literally picked me to go to Boys Nation. Uh, it, this was when I was a kid. I mean, look how far off Pete Dinelli has gotten. It's just absolutely, just totally 
ridiculous. And, and you know, today I felt like, well, I'm feeling forced to say something. i got to come out and say something and address all this stuff. If you want to save your city, go and go save, go save your city. I can't do it. I've been on the radio now for seven years. I'll continue to do what I do. There's people who benefit off the grift. There's people who, you know, know how to take. It's not my job to expose all of it. I don't care about it. I, I want to talk about, you know, we've got a big report that we're putting together, uh, me and, uh, me and uh, uh, Dowd, that we're going to put out for tomorrow, okay? And it's going to involve the spaceport and a lot of interconnects. It's going to make a lot of sense to you. So we got to take the work and do what we do daily, which is journalism, which is our work and putting information out and getting people opinions and entertained and all that kind of stuff. The rest of these causes and these agendas, if Jay McCluskey wants to go and run Manny Gonzalez's campaign or if he wants to go uh, help Mark Moores and he's going to make money, and get that's his deal. I don't care about that stuff. I, I don't need to take any of that on. I don't need to take on anything with regard to Michelle Lujan Grisham or any of that stuff. I mean, you guys have to go do that yourself. We've got 15,000-plus petitions here for Impeach MLG. We, we literally had the Republican Party working against us in, in getting that information out there. But why? <laughs> <laughs> Why? I, I'm literally doing the right thing all along. And it doesn't pay, folks. And I want to encourage you. <clears throat> you know, I guess this is just for some real clarity here. I want to encourage you to live your best life. Do your best thing. Be there for your families. Be there for your friends. Be there for what, you know, I, I can do all sorts of things. I can do anything I want. But I'm doing the one thing I want to do every single day right here. And that's, that's where it begins and, begins and ends for me. Sunrises and sunsets right here every single day at 4 p.m. as they start the show. That's, that's what I look forward to. I look forward to sharing the information that we have and that we've come across and moving forward, moving ahead, and, and talking, you know, giving you something. Hey, did you hear? Did, did, there's some information. Just like you. What, are you pursuing your passion? Is this your passion? Is this what you want to do? That's what you should be pursuing, whatever that is. And if it's not here, then don't do it here. Go do it some other place. So Dowd wrote me a very long letter, <clears throat> and I appreciate him because... Please don't read it. <laughs> please don't read it. Aloud. <laughs> Dowd wrote me a very long letter. I definitely won't read it. Um, and it really, it really moved me because I always feel like I'm caught between, you know, trying to help the city trying to make things better, and what I want to do, which is what I get to do every single day. I'm very lucky okay, in, in doing those things. And I hope that everybody out there is very lucky in pursuing whatever it is that they want to do. And if you're not, and you've taken this last year and you're not doing that, then I don't know what to say. The reason why I'm doing what I'm doing or why you like listening and why you listen every single day is because this is the true joy and passion for me. That speaks volumes, and you have to understand what that is. If if that's what motivates me, I mean, if that's what you see when why I'm motivated, then you have to understand what your motivations are, ultimately. So I just want to let you know I will not be running for mayor of the city of Albuquerque. Uh, I don't care how bad of a candidate either one of those guys are, and they're terrible candidates, both of them, especially, especially Mayor Tim Keller, but particularly Manny Gonzalez, a terrible candidate. Okay? I, I hope Lonnie Talbert gets in the race. I hope he pursues that. Hope he decides to go ahead and and and, and run. He's always nice, been he's big a, on him. Yeah, he's a nice guy. You know, he's just a nice guy. But let's remember, I think this is a city manager. We had a good guy once in in Pete to manage, and 
as much as I would love to be involved in this race and and have fun, I, I don't want to just jump in for the sake of just jumping in because everyone's want, wanting me to do it and because I'd be good at it. <laughs> I really don't want to. I just am not sincerely motivated. Um, and sincerely, your heart has to be in the right place. It can't be, you know, just lashing out for the sake of lashing out for sport, which is, I'm pretty good at that too. So that's where we'll leave it, I think, for today. So for all of those of you who are, you know, hoping for some big news and, you know, want to go and say, I want to do this. This is what I do. And I'm, I'm exhausted with all the, especially the inside the party stuff. I mean, Steve Pierce and Robert Aragon can have that damn party for all I care. Honestly, we're going to focus on making New Mexico a better place. Uh, it's that simple. There's nothing else that needs to be said. We don't need the parties to do that. We can make New Mexico and Albuquerque a better place. I am a leader. I am a leader for a reason. I am not a politician. Okay? Period. Not what I do. I don't have the ability to do it, and I will stick it to anybody who's trying to stick it to me. It's that, it's, it's that simple. There's a reason why we're trusted. There's a reason why people believe what we say. There's a reason why people do all these things to support our radio station. They do it. They do it because they understand that this comes from a very good place, that we are motivated by the right things. Dowd, you've been at this for 30 years. Uh, 29 years oh, come October. My gosh. And you still love it. <laughs> it never. It's never boring. It's never boring. Dowd, and I can sleep at night knowing I fought for what? American principles, the Enlightenment, there we freedom. Go. There we go. That, Rudy, you, you've been doing radio since uh, how long? 49 years. <laughs> 49 years. Since 1972. My dad's been involved in his business since he was 18. Loves it. Okay, He can tell you he doesn't love it. He wishes it wasn't good days. But he loves it. And he's loved what he's done for the community. People need to do what they love and do what they want to do. That's the most important thing. Sure, there's opportunities. I'm probably electable. I probably... I could tell you what I knew about both these guys looking at them. I'm like, oh my gosh, we're about to we're about to elect one of these scumbags. <laughs> what did I tell you about all politicians now? They uh, are, I believe, S C U M B A G S. They yes. truly are. <laughs> they absolutely are. And then these two, these two guys, boy, I mean, which is less scumbaggy, uh, if you will? So uh, we're just going to go ahead and just leave it there. So I, I hope you understand that. I just don't have any interest in this uh, running for mayor's uh, uh, race. And I appreciate Dowd's uh, email. And, you know, I looked at this and I said, okay, well, I registered. We'll see kind of what happens and we'll kind of let it go from there. I knew it was either going to be received fairly well or atrociously. <laughs> well, you, and, you're smarter but, than me. But, you know me better than I know myself. And I think. Well, I, know, I would say this. I spent this a lot of years good. in the mental health space with yeah. my own issues. And, yeah. and I, you know, I'm kind of associated with mental health in Corrales because my dog is a therapy dog. And, no. uh, you know, so I, I uh, and I've lived a lot of life. And I don't know. I mean, I, I just, uh, as you said and you read, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunity. I mean, we're coming up on, we just passed our 10 months, 10-month uh, anniversary. June 22nd is our, our one-year anniversary. And uh, I just wanted to tell you some things about myself and about my observations of you and, uh also express my gratitude. I do not express gratitude to Rudy because he still hasn't found me a lamp repair place, and I still hold it against <laughs> him. So if you're out there in Albuquerque land, folks, I need a lamp repair. Someone I can trust, lamp repair, um, lamp repair place. What is a lamp? <laughs> I have an apothecary lamp from Pottery Barn. In the old days when I worked in Connecticut and I was paid a Fairfield County 
salary, Mr. Grande. Uh, in Connecticut, you know, the worst thing that can happen is I left my tennis racket at Pottery Barn. <laughs> is Pottery Barn considered upscale? Uh, yeah, I, I still is say it's, yeah. It's got, it's got, as they've, as they've trotted the out more in? franchises, I yeah. suppose it's not as much. But uh, anyway, no, I, yeah, I, I appreciate you reading my letter, Eddie. And then, uh, Rudy, your letter's coming up soon. Um, there you go, Rudy. I will, uh, I'll lay out all the ways that you've disappointed you, me. Rudy, you're going to know what to do with the rest of your life, too. Okay? <laughs> you're going to realize that you are. But it's a rare person who can take any kind of assessment, criticism, feedback. I mean, most pe- are, are, we're defensive in nature. Anything that, anything that anyone has observed about us or maybe unsolicited advice, nine out of ten people are going to say, Go jump in a lake, and it's to Eddie Aragon's great credit that he's one of those few people who will just sit and either read the letter or sit and listen to you. And I hope I've reached that my point. My, I've I made a lot of changes in my radio persona because you guys have said do more of this, do less of that. I hope I've been better at that over the last yeah, ten months. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you cannot take any kind of feedback, criticism, assessment, comments, you're you're destined to be. Well, a snowflake, I guess, and that's, yeah. our whole country's I mean, like that. You now. know, if we could get more of our radio station more out to more people, I think I would be more satisfied with that. I would like to do more of what I'm doing, you know, uh, here, but on a maybe larger scale. Yeah. I think that would be. You know, I think we provide a pretty good product. Yeah, but I think you know maybe reaching a wider audience. Yeah. I think that would be something that I think we could definitely do, um, and not have to be emotionally charged up and and involved and. You know, I just think that, you know, you I, I sort of sat here today and I started seeing, like, these attacks already ramping up based upon the article on, on Saturday. And I'm like, oh, this is hilarious. You know, this is funny that all this stuff is, is coming out and they're coming after after me. Um, and it just shows, like, what a large target I am and how much fear there is. I mean, they literally had to run a candidate so that they can keep me from taking over the Republican Party. And well, you let, me, have, let me just be let me just be the first to tell you how ex, how incredibly excited it is not to hang out with those people. <laughs> like literally, I have no interest in your party or anything that you're doing anymore. You do what you want. Yeah. We'll help you promote. You're welcome to buy ads here. I'll be happy to interview you and all that. But I'm focused on the rock of talk. I'm focused on the radio station. That's the fo- that's the focus. But they're doing you know? to you what they've done to you. What I've observed recently is what they did to Limbaugh for thir- Mr. Rush Limbaugh. But it doesn't bother me. But, it, but it was like it. it was oh radio talk show host uh, irrelevant doesn't matter. Then why do you waste so much time attacking him? You know, it's yeah. the exact same pattern I saw nationally. What what I see here in Albuquerque and New Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, which is it, guys? <laughs> I think for me, I think, you know, the, the writing uh, is there right in front of me when I get to do this, and I'm and this is an absolute joy to do. You know, this is good, and I, I think we should do it. I think we should do it better. You know, the stuff that we're doing up north in Los Alamos and oh. in Santa Fe, same thing. Like, let's yeah. just get reach more people. Let's go talk to more people and get them thinking about more things mm-hmm. and just kind of leave it there. I think that's the best thing that we could do, you know. Um, and if syndication is a possibility... I think, honestly, the, we tried the politics part. We saw what terrible people are involved in politics. Who wants to be involved with it? Dowd, you've been around these people for how long? <laughs> you know? And, and they're constantly, you know, coming up with calculations and stuff. And I'm like, no, I don't think so. I don't want to waste my time, like, brewing up things that I need to do. And, like, and I, could, I could tear you apart. I could tear whoever it is. That'd be going against the part. You saw me do that. As as uh, as is usually the case, Nietzsche has the final word. <clears throat> uh, whosoever th- uh, desires to be a thinker must not be a party member, because very soon one thinks oneself out of the party. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's kind of uh, that's that is the final word. We'll just uh, go ahead and leave it there. Okay, so we, today we're going to play Doctor Yeadon. Okay, 
I thought we would just go with that because we've been threatening to play it for a little while. Yep. Right? On the vaccine specifically, so this yeah. is new, Dr. Eden. And so tomorrow, uh, tomorrow's entire show is going to be dedicated to the spaceport. Uh, we'll put the uh, final nails in the coffin. We'll create all the connections. So Dad and I will work hard on that. We'll have that. We'll roll all that stuff out. So that's exciting. Um, and then we'll have, you know, hopefully the rockoftalk.chat site back up. Um, I was untacked. I was attacked unnecessarily. Uh, for my views, and uh, let's just say someone wasn't happy with me, and everything just came down all at once. So we yeah, we, we do apologize for the and, dot and chat being down, but it, it's going to be up real soon, folks. Yeah, so hopefully you'll have that up. up I actually, now. having the site be down this weekend, ladies and gentlemen, oh. I took the weekend off for the first time in probably three years. I talked to my nephew in Jersey. I walked around. I played with a dog. I read a book. I watched some stupid movies. So, hey, you know, if that site wants to stay down for another... No, 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 no. It's, it's coming back up yeah, very, soon. So. <laughs> very soon. All right, so we'll have some, we'll have some fun uh, this week uh, for sure. Uh, you know, all sorts of stuff. There's a lot of things I've been wanting to play, and, and I think today or tomorrow's show, um, as we focus on Spaceport, uh, I think you guys are going to see some absolutely amazing things that have been taking place right here in your little backyard. So... Back after, uh, I don't know, about a five-minute break, and then we'll load up Eden, and uh, we'll play that. And Dowd and Rudy and I will, you know, continue talking here in the studio as we talk about things going forward. And then, of course, we'll have a full show back tomorrow. We ordered uh, 200 T-shirts uh, for you nice. Rock of Talk listeners out there. So we got all that out of the way. Uh, yeah, you don't need to show it because we're not <laughs> on video. But we have all the shows uh, for you, to put, or excuse me, all of the Shirts out there, and you guys can red and black. We have both options. I think he ordered. Or blue. I told I told Brian just to order all of them. Okay, and then pick out all the sizes and whatever we can move. So I don't know. So wherever Rudy's going to be, right, Rudy? You're going to take right. shirts with you. That'll start next week. Yeah, so you'll start taking out those shirts if we get them. You know, we don't want to hurry the guy, but whatever shirts he does have printed and available, then wear wear your Kiva shirt. Annoy a liberal. Well, there you go. That's, <laughs> it. That's all you have to do. All right. Back after a quick break, Dr. Yeadon, uh, here in the Kiva, AM 1600, KIVA, com. So thanks for the letter again, Dowd. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, kind of fun. Nice to kick the tires and look at it and say, yeah, maybe. Then say, maybe not. Just not interested. Don't. My time is worth more than that. It really is. I want to go out and have, uh, have some fun. Who knows? Play some golf. Pick up a new hobby. No, we don't need any of that to continue to do what we do each and every day here in the Kiva. Back in five minutes, 424. Thanks for listening. Oh, and, and uh, Murder Mike not on today. He'll be back tomorrow. Yeah, the over-under, who nailed it? Uh, we'll talk about that as well. I think we have three, three confirmed, um, but we'll have to double-check on all that. Uh, so back at the uh, bottom of the hour, 430. Thanks for listening. to us. I know as an experienced immunologist, reading the literature, looking at the theory and the practice, it's, it is a lie. And I worry about that. Basically, all of the working population is at less risk than influenza. There's no argument about it. The COVID-19 mRNA vaccine. This new technology is being advertised just about every place you go. But is this new vaccine safe? 
and will it one day become mandatory? I'm independent journalist Taylor Hudak, and to seek answers to these questions, today I turn to former vice president of Pfizer, Dr. Michael Yeadon. If you or someone you love is on the fence about receiving the COVID-19 vaccine or wants to learn more information, watch this video and send it to your loved ones because this is a perspective that you will not find anywhere else. Dr. Michael Yeenan, first, I want to thank you for joining me today and taking the time to speak with me. My pleasure. I'm glad to uh, inform you and your, and your audience about my, my thoughts on this matter. So before we do get started, why don't we begin with your qualifications and your background in the medical field? So I'm a, I'm a PhD research scientist. Um, 40 years this year since I started my training, biochemistry and toxicology, followed by research-based PhD in respiratory pharmacology. So I've covered a wide range of life science disciplines necessary to identify potential targets uh, for new drugs to treat respiratory, allergic, and immunological diseases. And now I've spent 32 years uh, in pharmaceutical R&D, mostly in big companies. Uh, I left Pfizer 10 years ago as head of research worldwide for respiratory. In the last 10 years, I've been an independent entrepreneur advising several dozen startup companies, and I had the privilege of founding and successfully running for five years my own biotech, which was sold to Novartis four years ago. So that's me. And you also held a position as vice president of Pfizer. I was vice president and chief scientist of allergy and respiratory research. Okay. So I just want to start basic as well. For the past year, we, of course, have heard a lot about COVID-19 in the mainstream press. It has dominated the mainstream press. And one would believe, due to this coverage, that this virus is unlike any other virus that we have been exposed to before, that it is very deadly, and that the medical field is really unsure how to treat it. Do you agree with that assessment? And can you explain what really is COVID-19? No, I don't, I don't agree with that assessment. I would say that it's actually a really rather middling kind of virus. Uh, yes, it certainly uh, has a heightened risk. If you're elderly and already ill, there's a heightened risk that it will kill you, seriously. Uh, and it is probably more lethal than influenza, say, uh, to adults over 70. But the corollary is it's less lethal to adults under 70 than is influenza. Seriously, the, the, the sharpest risk factor you can look for is, is age. And the steepness of that risk rises strongly with COVID with age and less so with influenza. And as a result, it's a really scary virus if you're old and ill, uh, but it's less lethal to people under 70 than is influenza. So you ask, you know, is the, uh, I guess you implied, is, is the policy response appropriate? No, it's not. I mean, basically all of the working population is at less risk than to influenza. There's no argument about it. So, why they've done what they have done, um, your guess is at least as good as mine. We've heard a lot about the new variants within the past six months or so, and I know that you have been doing some research on this, and you just wrote a piece re recently with Mark Girardeau, and in this piece about the new variants, it states, quote, to date, 
No robust scientific evidence proves that any variants identified are more transmissible or deadly. By definition, variants are clinically identical, end quote. Can you explain the COVID-19 variants and if we should be concerned about them? And why is the media and the public health industry really causing alarm for this when there perhaps may not need to be so much concern? So let's take the first part first and then we can come back to the why question. Um, the first part. So, as I say, it's a middling kind of virus. Uh, you know, it's, it's worse than the common cold. However, it is uh, of the same class of viruses as other coronaviruses, uh, HKU1 and so on. There are four endemic common cold causing coronaviruses. And all that's happened is that SARS-CoV-2 is, as it were, uh, it's a more lethal version of, of that. But it, it's not unfamiliar. It's of a viruses that's been amongst us for thousands of years. Um, so variants. This is a very large virus. It's uh, made, people may understand that it's made of protein. Proteins consist of amino acids. They are the building blocks of protein. And this virus consists of about 10,000 of those building blocks. If you look for the variant that's most different from the original sequence from Wuhan in late December, January, a year and a half ago, a year and a third ago, you find the thing that's most different from that. I was stunned to find that it's only 0.3% different. It's a slug of a virus in terms of changing its form. So in 16 months, it's moved 0.3% in its sequence. The corollary is true. That means all the variants are 99.7% identical. So if you imagine holding up one virus and another, 997 your, your visual system would maybe struggle to spot the differences, and uh, if there were small differences, you would very much recognize them as, uh, as a pair. And you would see that they were so closely related that you might even think one glass they are the same. The same is true of your immune system. Normally, your immune system, when it spots a pathogen, a new foreign organism, it cuts that organism up into a couple of dozen pieces, maybe hundreds sometimes, and goes through a molecular identity parade, offering each of those pieces in turn to your immune system until some cells in your immune system say, hey, I recognize that little piece, and they're advised to go off and multiply the cells that recognize that piece. And it goes so on, so on, so on, until you've taken a molecular identity parade uh, of all of the pieces that the virus can be cut up into. So now if a variant comes along that is 0.3% different, 99.7% the same, and your body cuts it up into little pieces, as you would expect, most of those little pieces are identical to the little pieces that you cut up from the earlier virus. In other words, these small changes in the variants are hopelessly little to fool your body into thinking it's a new pathogen. It's a really important point. When people talk about immune escape, they mean your body is fooled and thinks it's a new pathogen. It's simply not possible. And let's let me quickly give, quickly give you a, another yardstick so you can judge whether you believe what I'm saying. You may remember in 2003, there was an earlier SARS virus that didn't spread so widely around the world, but it was alarming. Uh, SARS-CoV-2, uh, the latest version, is 20% different from the SARS-2003, 20%. That's about 80 times more distant than any of the variants are from the current virus. But there were some enterprising immunologists and they managed to find some people who'd been infected 
with SARS in 2003 and asked them if they would be willing to donate some blood, and they did. And they extracted their uh, T memory cells and asked two, two important questions. Do they still remember SARS 17 years later? They did. All the people who had been infected 17 years ago, their cells were lit up when they saw the same virus. The second question was, if you give them today's virus, SARS-CoV-2, did they, res- did they respond or not respond? They all responded. And it shouldn't be that much of a surprise because 80% of the new virus and the old one are identical. And so with that story, 20% difference is completely inadequate to fool your body that it's a new virus. So why in the world would you possibly believe people telling you that 0.3% is enough to cause a problem? The answer is it's not. Uh, to your question about why it's why that's been why we've been told otherwise, uh, my straight answer is it's not my crime. So I don't know why they're doing it, but they are lying to us. They're directly telling untruthful statements that I, I know as an experienced immunologist reading the literature, looking at the theory and the practice, it's it is a lie. And I worry about that. Now, people hearing this right now are probably feeling quite alarmed, but not surprised. A lot of people feel lied to right now, but it still is very scary. Can you think of possibly why we are being so deceived? Yes, I, I, I worked out quite early on that we were not being told the truth, probably uh, late April last year. Uh, after once the first lockdown was maybe three or four weeks old, and uh, I had seen that the Peak of deaths, peak of excess deaths had passed in the UK and I was relieved. And I could see the number of daily deaths was falling. And instead of then the government saying, the worst of the wave has passed, you know, go back to your normal lives, they said, we're going to lock you down again and again and again until it was like midsummer. And at that, at that point, uh, during that period, I worked out something very malign is going on. So, um, as to what that was, um, I kind of self-centered for several months because I also didn't have an answer. But I've come to the scary conclusion that really what this is about is getting the world's population onto a, the world's first, uh, you know, um, um, what do you call it, a data, what the world's first uh, database with common uh, format where all of us will have a unique ID, a unique ID, and there'll be at least one field that's editable which will contain uh, either a thumb up that your vaccine passport is valid or a thumb down that says it's not. Now, it could be as many fields as you like added to that. I'm, I'm not a technologist, so I couldn't tell you what else could be done. But if, if this vaccine passport scheme comes into being, you know, if, I, if I'm vaccinated, I'll have an app, presumably with a QR code that says who I am, where I am, and that I'm entitled per the algorithm that's enforced that day, to cross a particular threshold or conduct a particular transaction. If, on the other hand, my vaccine passport is invalid, I will be prevented from crossing a threshold or performing a transaction. I call that totalitarian control. There would literally be nothing that I might want to do that wouldn't be in the gift of whoever controls that database and the algorithm. And what they will do, I believe, is... That, I think, is the objective of this global fraud, is to push everybody onto this first ever uh, interactive, common format, um, algorithm-driven, you know, editable uh, uh, vaccine passport scheme. 
And, and I think if that happens, then that's the end of liberal democracy. I cannot see a way in which you would be able to step off that platform because the algorithm simply needs to say you need a valid passport in order to say buy gasoline, uh, shop, uh, even use your bank card across uh, an international border. Absolutely anything could, if they want to, require a valid passport. And here's just the thing just to frighten the hell out of your listeners, because you might think that's not too bad. Maybe, you know, our leaders will be more benign. But if, if they send you a reminder and says, um, you need to come for a top-up vaccine, um, and I, I will talk about top-up vaccines later, but say it also says, would you mind bringing in your 13-year-old son and your 12-year-old daughter? Uh, and you might think, well, I don't want them vaccinated. And at the bottom of the app will say, if you do not comply with this request, your vaccine passport will expire in 20 days. So if you, if you want to allow the system to come into, play into force, there is nothing you can, can be asked to do that you are empowered to refuse because the system will simply exclude you from your life. Um, so yeah, that's about why I'm, so that's why I think they've been lying to us. And it took me 10 or 11 months to arrive at that view, but it's not my crime and there might be other reasons. What I can tell you is that nothing we've been told is kind of genuine and honest. I'm going to ask you to speculate once again. Do you believe that this has been pre-planned for some time now? Let, let me just say a couple of things. I'm a kind of middle class guy who's adhered to the sort of professional circuit all of my life. I've put my head down, I've worked hard, did reasonably well. Would laugh at conspiracy theorists. I'd read middle of the road newspapers. I would vote for party A or party B. I've never had a public position on anything. I've not campaigned for a politician or a cause or against a cause. Um, and so, and I would until this year have laughed at anyone who came up with something that might be classified as a conspiracy theory. Uh, but I am now with that as a backdrop convinced we are in the middle of, as it were, a psychological operation that's affecting a substantial part of the world whose goals are wholly malign. I don't know who the actors are, although you can guess at some of them. And I don't really care what the purpose is. It's extremely bad that, that we are, that we've locked down um, our economies and our civil society for prolonged periods. Uh, and, and there's simply no basis for doing that. And so it's damaged us severely, uh, economically, socially, and psychologically. Um, and yeah, so I do believe, and to your question, has it been planned? Uh, unfortunately, I, I realized uh, over the last three months that multiple par parties in the world have, have done, as it were, they've war-gamed, they've done tabletop simulations of pandemics or chemical or biological warfare. I, I kind of knew that and I'd forgotten it. I remember, uh, I think it was Operation Atlantic Storm, uh, and it was a lot of it on the TV, but and I did, what I didn't realize is that there were a dozen of these things that have run from 1993 to events 201 in 2019. So basically, there's been sufficient coordination and planning for an event like this, uh, and all you need to do is flip, flip it a little bit and say, well, if you wanted to manufacture this crisis, you'd use exactly the same management techniques as responding to a real external crisis. So bottom line is, I'm afraid I'm drawn, kicking and screaming and reluctantly to, a, to the conclusion it's most likely that it has been planning for a long time, I'm afraid to say. 
Now, just a year ago, those of us who were warning about the possibility of vaccine passports were called conspiracy theorists. And, yes. you know, now it is something that is being discussed within our government. So we're starting to see that happen. And I also want to touch on lockdowns, the science behind them before we do get to the vaccines. Do you think there was okay. any justification ever to put an entire nation or the entire world on a lockdown? And how damaging are lockdowns to one's health? So, so the first question, was there a justification? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And obviously, it's hideously damaging um, because a lot of economic activity stops. Um, that will ratchet downwards the sort of general wealth of nations. We know that has adverse consequences on health. So straight away, it, it isn't just a free pass. You know, lockdown is neutral. Let's see if we can save people from COVID. Lockdown, of course, is very bad straight away. It's enormously costly uh, at every level, socially, scientifically, and so on, medically as well. In terms of the justification, I think it's worth just stating what the justification was, and then I'm going to pull its arms and legs off. So the justification was, um, this is a dangerous new, vi new virus. It's a virus that's transmitted between people by human contact. And that, that much is true. And so then they jumped several steps and said, and therefore, if we can reduce the average number of human contacts, we will slow transmission. But they made a mistake there. It isn't just, or it isn't even, the number of human contacts that allows the epidemic to spread. It's very specifically this. It's the number of infectious contacts. That's very different. So everybody will know, and they've never heard of it before, asymptomatic transmission. The concept that a perfectly well person can represent a respiratory virus threat to another person. That was invented about a year ago. Never been mentioned before no. in history. Let me just stop and you right there. This is something, this asymptomatic spread was previously not discussed within the medical field. Is that correct? Yes. When, it, well, when we go back and ask the question, you can't find loads and loads of papers about this, which is surprising if it's something that happens so commonly. Uh, I think it's, it's been discussed. People were wondering at what stage in the evolution of your disease in response to a virus, at what stage would you become most infected? Uh, would, you, would there ever be a stage where you could be very infectious and not aware and then we've got to this idea of pre-symptomatic or posi-symptomatic. Basically, the virus is growing in your body and you are fighting back. Those two things result in symptoms with no question. It's not possible to have a body full of respiratory virus to the point that you're a good infectious source and for you not to have symptoms that others can see as well. That's not possible. And so, uh, yeah, I've lost the train of thinking. Yes, the point is, it's not true that people without symptoms are a strong respiratory virus threat. And so uh, where, where were the, these infectious contacts occurring? They're not in the general community. Why aren't they? Because to be an infectious risk, you need to be full of virus and symptomatic so that you're ejecting virus and virus droplets. Those people already have symptoms. If you've got a bad flu or a bad dose of COVID, not only have you got symptoms, you feel unwell, possibly very unwell, possibly you've taken to your bed, possibly you're in hospital. What you're not going to be doing is living a normal life, going around the community, shopping, going to work. And so my point is this. I don't think ever in the community there were a large number of infectious contact events. 
and therefore removing those contacts by locking down the general population, you wouldn't expect it to do much to transmission, and so it shouldn't be a surprise that it didn't have much effect to transmission occurring. It's where people are immobilized, symptomatic and ill, and in contact with well people. That sounds like a hospital to me, or a care home, possibly your own domestic residence. I think, you know, I think mostly hospitals and care homes, a poor second was the domestic occasion. Uh, uh, and I think in the general community, almost no transmission. And so we, we smashed everything on a false pretense and it didn't do anything to transmission. And now we know why. I want to talk now about the vaccines, and in particular the mRNA vaccine. This is the first time in history that we have seen the widespread use of mRNA vaccines. Can you explain the difference between a traditional vaccine and this mRNA vaccine? Yes, I can. Thank you. Yes, the, a traditional vaccine, going back as, as right back into the eons of time, hundreds of years ago with Edward Jenner and people like that, they would take uh, either uh, an attenuated version of the infection, something that was weakened, and often it would just be killed. You know, you would basically grow up the bug or grow up the virus, usually viruses. They would kill it, chemically modify it, and then give you a defined dose of it. And your body would recognize some of the fragments of this deceased pathogen and uh, grow both antibody responses and so-called T-cell responses to those, so that if you encountered the real life thing, You'd go, I, I recognize this. I've seen this already and I've got special weapons and techniques and I can defend my host. But these, these new vaccines are quite different. They don't contain any of the pathogen. What they do is contain code, genetic code for a part of the pathogen. And so basically that's messenger RNA, which is something that sits between your, your DNA, your genes and protein. It's the message that, that actually copies your genes into protein, something you can actually see. And so for the first time ever, widespread use, as you say, messenger RNA-based vaccines. And um, I think the goal was that they would inject that into you and it would find its way into some of your cells. Some of those cells would then copy the message, almost as if it was your own genes. And you would manufacture that piece of the pathogen and you'd respond to that. It, it struck me at the time as, uh, kind of unnecessarily going around the house. Why, why would you take three steps back when you could just give some of the death, dead pathogen? But it is true. They've not been used before. When I was in, when I left Big Pharma 10 years ago, that technology was still experimental and the experimental targets were all severe diseases like cancer. And the reason that was true was that when I'd left 10 years ago, we still haven't got over two key problems. One was to make enough of this messenger RNA uh, that would be stable, so you could inject it or, or absorb it. Um, it's just simply not stable. And why would it be? It's, a, it's meant to be something that's only alive uh, or only exists for a very short period of time. As it copies your DNA into a protein and then it winks out of existence. It's, a, it's like a signal, like a radio signal. It comes, you receive it, and it's gone. So it's, it's not meant to be stabilized. Uh, and, and that was one of the problems. When we tried to manufacture it, it would often degrade uh, after you'd made it or as soon as you gave it to a cell or an animal. The other problem was we couldn't get it inside cells. It's not surprising. You normally make it inside a cell. It works inside a cell. And it's the product of mRNA that then goes off into the extracellular surface and does something. 
in your body. So it's not natural for mRNA to arrive externally and to travel inside a cell. And in fact, you have defenses to prevent that very thing. Think why that might be. It's to stop foreign, foreign genetics from getting into your cellular machinery. You don't want this to happen. You have extremely uh, uh, well-developed defenses that will cut that up or recognize it as a, as a foreign. And so, um, yeah, so I was extraordinarily surprised when I learned in, in spring of last year that multiple companies had adopted this technology for the production of vaccines. And I have not felt good about that since that day because I, I just, I think they must be less safe than conventional vaccines. They must be. What are some of the risk factors with the mRNA vaccine and what can it possibly do to the body? Yes, yeah, good question. So uh, I can tell you some of the things we don't know. Uh, I did review the dossiers that had been submitted to medicines regulators. And what the innovators, the manufacturers have not done is described where in the body the mRNA, the messenger RNA goes after administration. They, and they also don't, uh, they haven't determined how long the effects of the messenger RNA last. Now, it might strike you as a tremendous surprise. Why have they not been asked to do that? And the answer is because they classified themselves as a vaccine. And vaccines are not required to do this. And the reason they're not is it's normally just a piece of dead pathogen. We don't really care. We know how they work with, with dozens of these things over the decades. So they're not asked to identify where does it go and how long does its effects last. Now, I think they should have been asked to do that. I do accept that they are vaccines, but I think that underclassifies them and misleadingly so. I think they should be called gene-based vaccines because that's what they are. And so what I'm telling you is we don't know where they go. We don't know how long their effects last. And that's why I'm concerned about potential for side effects. And in particular, all of the spike protein-based, gene-based vaccines, I think they all share... Um, I'm not sure, I, I can only assume it was accidental. I think they all share a class risk effect. And that's because all of them are designed to go into your body, go into some cells somewhere, harness the cells, manufacturing machinery, and make a piece of the pathogen, which is the spike. There's things you see on the outside in the cartoons. But spike protein, we understand, is like a docking protein. This allows the virus to bind to a cell receptor on the outside of human cells. But it's not a passive binding protein. It's biologically active. It can prompt cells to stick together. It has so-called fusogenic properties. And it can also initiate blood coagulation. And so now, if you imagine a person receive the, the vaccine, mRNA vaccine, it'll travel around their body and it'll deposit differently in each person. It'll be like a typical pattern. Is this why people are getting blood clots? Post-vaccine. Yeah, I'm, ex I'm explaining, yes. Yeah. So uh, you would expect a normal bell curve, a distribution of where the va vaccine goes. And some people, they may get little, very little will be picked up. Loads of people have the middling amount. But there'll be some people on the tail risk, the right-hand side. They might get a lot of the uh, messenger might be picked up in a place where they're vulnerable, maybe in a blood vessel in their brain uh, or in some branch point in their blood vessel. And now imagine you happen to be one of the unlucky people that took up a lot of that virus, the, 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 the messenger RNA, and then yet again another 
manufactured lots of spike protein in that spot because it will be a normal distribution in every person. So if you're the outlier of the outlier, the one in a few thousand, you could end up producing a lot of spike protein in just the wrong pace in your body. And if you had to be susceptible to formation of a blood clot, given what I just told you about properties of spike protein, I would predict this is what you'd expect. Uh, and sure enough, they found in Europe, um, I think several dozen cases of healthy, fit women, quite young, 20 to 50, who have died of cerebral vein sinus thrombosis. And uh, even the regulator has now said, we believe it is causatively associated. And, you know, all of these gene-based vaccines, I think they all have this kind of tail risk effect because unlike a conventional vaccine where you get a defined dose and that's what you get, with the ones that encode something, you've got multiple properties. One is how does it distribute? How is it taken up? How efficiently is it copied? I just think that automatically widens the envelope of, of the biological responses. And, and if you happen to be one of the people on the far right-hand side, it gets a, you know, a blood clot, it could kill you. And so that's, that's where I think we've got to. And as a toxicologist, that was my first training, I would expect that to be a class effect. I, I wouldn't know whether it was worse or better with one messenger uh, uh, RNA vaccine than another, but I would say they should qualitatively have similar effects. And so it's not enough to say, well, don't use the AstraZeneca one because of blood clots, use something else. I think if they all produce spike protein, I would think if you look properly instead of looking the other way, you'll see a similar spectrum of unwanted effects. So you mentioned some unlucky people. Do you think that these potential risks are clinically significant? Yes, I, I do. Uh, and I think that because I'm afraid we have had some deaths uh, through thromboembolic events, that's blood clots and bleeding, that uh, have occurred in people where the background rate of that finding is very low. And that's really why it's come out. So if you're a healthy young woman, you don't have any special risks for, for blood clots, uh, let alone, you know, in particularly vulnerable spots in your brain. And you arrive in hospital, blinding headaches, and they take a history and they do some diagnostics and they say, this person has cerebral vein sinus thrombosis. Uh, I think something like 50% of people who turn up who get that diagnosis die. It's, I mean, a really serious thing. Blood flow outflow from your brain is being occluded by a, a developing clot. Uh, it turns out that people of that age and disposition very rarely suffer from this uh, complication. So when they saw seven cases, one after the other in a short period of time, and common factor was they'd recently had one of these vaccines, it didn't take them long to think this could be it. And then another country had a similar cluster in the same kind of patient. But I don't think it's only in those patients that blood clots have formed. It's really important that I communicate this. It's that it, they were unable to avoid it. They couldn't look the other way because sinus vein, uh, uh, cerebral vein sinus thrombosis is so unusual that to get seven cases, I think it was seven fatalities quite close together, you know, it, it's not a background finding. But what about people who are a little older and a little sick? Well, yeah, blood shots are not uncommon, as they keep telling us. Well, you know, even if you had double the rate, if you weren't looking hard, you probably wouldn't notice. Doesn't mean it's not there. In fact, I'm convinced there's a, there are blood clot risks probably in all cohorts of both genders. And we, but is this one we've noticed because they couldn't look the other way? 
because the background rate was so low when they saw the cluster had to ascribe it to the drug. This is so incredible. I do want to ask you about the stage that we are in with this vaccine rollout. Are we still in the experimental stage? Yes, definitely. I'm surprised, I'm half surprised that you're asking me that because, of course, you and I know that these are, um, they have received what's called experimental use authorization, uh, certainly in Europe and the US, probably other places too. What does that mean? It means the authorities have decided that there is a sufficiently a sufficient crisis going on and that there are no alternative medical uh, or pharmacological treatments. And so this is something. And so we'll let you use this because it's an emergency. Well, I think it's questionable, really, whether we're still in an emergency. Um, and if, if we're not still in an emergency, don't you think it's time to lift the authorization? Because uh, being emergency authorized, they are still in their what's called pivotal phase three trials. People probably know the drug goes through phase one, health two volunteers, phase two, working out does it work and at what dose in patients. Phase three is a big long-term safety and efficacy trial. It usually takes years, and in this case, about two more years to go. So we're still two years from the goal line where we would normally even tentatively allow these to be rolled out in general population. Two years. Um, and what's happened in that time um, is there are alternative medical and pharmacological treatments. So people have heard of hydroxychloroquinone or uh, corticosteroids like budesonide. Uh, uh, They've heard of ivermectin, an off-patent antiparasitic. All three of these have been shown in really good quality trials of at least the same power as, as the vaccine trials uh, and have produced similar or better uh, uh, outcomes. So why are regulators around the world just averting their eyes and refusing to look at these other small molecule treatments. And the answer is, if they do that, then the emergency use authorization for the vaccines uh, terminates. And so, when, you know, I've been very frustrated as, as a drug discoverer to, to learn that there are at least three or four alternative treatments that I would definitely want for myself and my relatives if I had COVID-19. And uh, the regulators have, have either banned them, they've actively said these are not suitable, or they've just sort of gone deaf and dumb and they will not listen to a proposition. Um, and so where are we now with the rollout? I think we're beyond reckless. Um, even if you put the most positive spin on the clinical profile of these experimental vaccines, uh, I think they should have been made available uh, offered to the people who are at clearly elevated risk of dying if they're infected with COVID-19. And I don't think we should have given them to anyone else. If you're saying, I'm my age, 60, I have no existing medical conditions, uh, there are hardly anybody, hardly anyone, a male, 60, no prior conditions, hardly anyone in Britain died even with COVID in the last uh, 16 months or so. Fewer people died of COVID uh, so, sorry, with COVID in my country, with a description like mine, then died falling off motorcycles, which is one of my hobbies. So I just thought I'd mention that just to give you a, a flavour for the risk. And yet we're vaccinating the entire population of the United Kingdom, uh, including people much younger than me, whose risks are much lower. And yet all of them are carrying uh, the toxicity risks, whether known or not known. So it was always an inappropriate thing to have done. Um, and I'm more and more troubled as time goes on. 
i.e. marketing materials, persuasion campaigns to try and persuade pregnant women in their 20s to get vaccinated. Uh, What kind of unethical monster does that? And uh, there are also pediatric trials going on, studies in children uh, for a disease they never get. In the UK, for example, not a single child who was fit and well acquired this virus and died, not one. And we have 10 million children under the age of 10. And later in the year, they are taped according to the government's plans to be vaccinated. How can that possibly make any sense? There's no clinical benefit if they're not susceptible to to getting ill with the virus. No clinical benefit. How will you then offset the known risks? There will always be known risks, and then there will be things we don't understand yet. That is, we're only two years from the goal line. Um, but and that's partly why I'm doing these interviews. I, I believe we are we're beyond reckless in offering these vaccines, pushing these vaccines to people who are not at elevated risk from from dying from the virus. I, I just don't understand any ethical reason why I'd want to do this. And that's what's finally led me kicking and screaming to the view that if there isn't a benign reason why it's being done, there must be a malign reason. And I think that malign reason which would explain why everybody's to be vaccinated is we're going to force you guys, everybody, men, men, women and children, and eventually babies onto a unique world's first vaccine passport based ID system. And if people don't resist this, I think it's the end of liberal democracy everywhere. Just to be absolutely clear, I've spent 32 years of my professional life uh, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I'm just a hugely privileged uh, uh, I would say pharmaceutical R&D's a friend once described it as the last truly important organized game for adults, trying to find what's gone wrong in human disease, how can we intervene to help the patient and to do so with the fewest amount of side effects. That's the mission. So I'm massively in favor of new and, ex- and exciting therapeutics, whether they're you know, creams or tablets, lotions, sprays or vaccines. What I'm, what I'm pro then is I'm pro safe medicines and I'm very much against things that I think are risky and I'm very much against things when they're used in, in the wrong context. So you should give a strong medicine to someone who's got most to gain from it and not give it to people who are not. So with that as a backdrop, my wife's similar description, you know, same age, no prior conditions. We've checked almost no one of that description has died even with COVID. My children are in their 20s, fit and well, no prior conditions. Why in the world would I do anything other than say, you don't have a risk to reduce. You're not at risk from this virus. Why would you want to spend any time and effort in taking a risk to reduce this risk? So I would say, because of that, don't, don't do it. But um, my parents are dead, but if they, if they were around, they would have been in their mid-80s. And uh, if, if they were otherwise reasonably well, I might say, you know, it, it might be worth you considering taking it. There are some risks, but most people aren't killed by the, by the vaccine. And I do believe you'd have a measure of protection. So let's talk about it. So I'm not anti-vax. I'm not even anti against. I'm not anti against all these vac- vaccines in the right context. What I'm absolutely solidly against is the way they're being pushed into young and fit people not at risk from the virus, uh, and therefore they are bearing uh, the adverse consequences, small or large, and that's, that's never, been, never been supported before in a, in a civilized society. It's the sort of thing, you know, of nightmarish, sort of bad behavior occasionally that one hears of by, by, by businesses, and I just don't want any part of this. 
Dr. Dolores Cahill of University College Dublin has predicted that within three to five years of receiving the vaccine, this mRNA vaccine, that people will unfortunately die as a result of receiving this vaccine. And we know as well that the more harm from these mRNA vaccines will happen in the years to come. So my, you know, what I've been saying all along is anyone who's over 70 who gets one of these mRNA vaccines will probably be sadly die within about two to three years. And I would say anyone who gets the mRNA injection, no matter what age you are, your life expectancy will be reduced to, you know, die if you're in your 30s within five to 10 years. Do you agree with that assessment? Uh, I, I wouldn't say I agree or disagree. I, I, you know, I respect yours hugely. Comment, though, that um, we actually don't know what will happen. Right. This experiment has not yet been run to conclusion. So I know she's giving her honest opinion uh, and I would say she could be right. But I believe we don't know enough to say we, we, that that will definitely happen. She's not wrong to point out that um, diseases like this, including SARS itself, and, and I think dengue fever as well, there have been peculiar situations where people with antibodies to to this pathogen have sometimes uh, experienced a phenomenon called antibody-dependent worse disease. Antibody-dependent enhancement, it's called. Enhancement is not good in this case. Uh, so I think that may be where Dolores is coming from. And I think what she might be doing is joining the dots from prior bad experiences and saying uh, that I, I think it's a serious risk that this could happen. And I, I think I would, I would go as far as that and say there's a serious risk that might happen. My, my, my bigger concern, though, if we can go on, can we get, should we get to variants? Because that's, that, that's where Mike Eden's greatest concern is that others might disagree with me. So, so I, I've given a reply to Dolores' concern, uh, and I would like at some point to get onto mine. It literally keeps me awake at night. Yes, of course, please do. I, I think I mentioned earlier that the variants are, uh, some people call them scariants, that they're being used uh, as a sort of psychological operation. And I think there's something in that. And I sarcastically call them the Stamians, because they're really the same. They're so sim All the variants are so similar to the original, there's no chance whatsoever that your body will see them as anything new. So with that as a backdrop, isn't it scary that politicians keep telling us about variants uh, and how we need to close borders and stop them moving around the world? Uh, and don't worry, the pharmaceutical industry will make um, modified vaccines that will address the, these new these new variants. And then I've heard recently some of the pharmaceutical companies are actually manufacturing top-up or variant vaccines. But the, if Mike Eden's correct, and I'm confident I am, this is my strength, um, immunology. And I, what I've just told you is absolutely true. They're so similar to the original. There is, it's not just implausible, it's impossible. You would need a new vaccine to accommodate them. And yet you're being told they're necessary. You're being told they're being manufactured. I'm quite frightened because I've got this open question. What the hell is in those bottles of variant vaccine? And then, uh, as I say, the world's regulators have said they're so similar to the vaccines that are already being used, by the way, for getting to tell us or remind us that they are only emergency use authorised anyway. But the regulators have said we don't need any clinical safety testing done on these, on these variants. So if you combine my horror about vaccine passports and how you would be compelled to do or not do whatever the algorithm tells you. If you combine that with an opportunity to be told, uh, go and get your variant vaccine, 
and pharmaceutical industry can make whatever the hell they want, put it in a vial, and you'll go along and be injected with it. Uh, my, my significant fear is if somebody wanted to, someone wanted to arrange a situation where mass depopulation could be accompanied, could be accomplished, this would probably be a perfect way of doing it. All we need to do is add some soupçon of fear periodically. Maybe a new virus arises uh, and the media is full of fear porn and vaccine. You would go down. You would get it. You wouldn't suspect anything if you've not been thinking. Uh, but if three months, six months, a year later, whatever it is, it's in those uh, messenger RNA or cDNA uh, top-up vaccines, so brings about whatever the design effect is. Maybe it'll make you ill, maybe it'll kill you. Uh, plausible deniability, um, a long-running human fight against uh, you know, horrible pathogens, and sadly all these people died. Almost, that's what I think the plausible deniability. Scares from, from media, suppression of people like me and alternative viewpoints, uh, clearly manufacture of what well, I think of fraudulently, fraudulent and not needed products, and then a vaccine passport to prompt you, require you to go and get them. I, it's, just a, it's literally a nightmare, isn't it? But it's happening. What I've just described is pretty much government policy. So it's not my crime. If I'm wrong and anyone who's listening says, I've spotted where Dr. Eden's gone wrong, please, for God's sake, you know, write to Taylor and tell her because I'll sleep better. But I've asked, I've, I've asked this challenge in writing, on podcasts and in face-to-face -face interviews. Not one person has come back with one suggestion as for the benign interpretation of what is happening. It's very scary. Absolutely. Dr. Eden, it has become very clear that we are headed down a very dangerous path to be possibly existing in a biosecurity state. What can people do to stop this from happening? Yes, uh, it's a great question, and it's really why I'm, why I'm here. I would say if you are not at elevated risk of dying if infected, please do not have the vaccine. I'm not anti-vax, I'm pro-safe medicines. Don't take it because you don't have an elevated risk that needs reducing. It would be like giving a 20-year-old a, a flu vaccine. They probably wouldn't come, would they? Because they would say, I'm not at risk, why are you offering me this damn vaccine? Uh, but I can tell you, if you're 20, your, your risk of dying from influenza is very low, but it's higher than the chance of you dying of COVID-19. It is. Dr. John I and I, these calculations show this. If you're under 70 or 60, uh, you're at greater risk of dying from influenza than COVID-19. So if you didn't seek an influenza vaccine last season, why in the world would you want a COVID-19 vaccine? You're at less risk from that. So, so, that's, so there's two things. One is if you're not at risk from the virus, serious risk, you know, elderly and or already ill, don't take the vaccine. Because if you, if you simply choose not to, if enough of you and your peers uh, and family and friends and workmates don't take it, they can't start the vaccine passport system, right? You may have a good chance in, in North America, because I think you're way behind on percentage vaccination. We're already lost in the UK. We're in the mid-60s percent now, I think, of adults. Uh, that might even be pretty much more than anyone else. It's the most vaccinated sort of first world country and I, we will get, we're going to be the first that goes under and I will be leaving the country because it's not going to be, it's going to be dark. So first would be 
you know, don't be blandished, don't be persuaded to take this damn va- these damn vaccines. If you are not at risk from the disease, why in the world would you take the vaccine, even if they were completely safe and they're not? Then um, the next thing is campaign like hell against vaccine passports. Look, if you're a vulnerable person and you've been offered the vaccine and accepted it and you've had a good experience, you're now immune, you are protected. You don't need to know the immune status of anyone by your side of a football game or in the queue at a supermarket or, or, or in your workplace or, or even maybe in a restaurant. You don't need to know it. You're already protected, just like you would have been if you'd had the flu jam. You didn't ask anyone else for their, excuse me, tell me your immune status as regards influenza this year. If you're vulnerable and you've been vaccinated, you're protected. You don't need the faux protection of a vaccine passport. If you're young and fit, you're not vulnerable anyway. And again, you don't need to know the immune status of anyone near you. Guess who it is that does want the vaccine passport? It's the people persuading you to have it. It's the people who want to control us. You don't need it. You don't benefit from it. It'll just make your life constrained beyond measure. So campaign against it. Don't get vaccinated unless you are highly vulnerable to the virus. And keep moving to countries that are vaccinating slowly. That's my plan. I have to leave. I'm not going to be vaccinated. And I don't think that's going to be tolerated for for much longer. This has been very insightful and eye-opening. Dr. Michael Eden, thank you. Thank you for letting this message get out to more people. Thank you. Thank you. And I want to thank you all for watching today. Make sure you share this video with your friends and your family. As you all know, this is a very suppressed topic in the mainstream news. But if you feel compelled to act after everything that you just heard and want to prevent a possible medical tyranny and dystopian vaccination passport, I highly suggest that you also visit doctorsforcovidethics.medium.com. You could also follow this organization on Twitter at doctors, the number four COVID ethics. This particular organization is comprised of doctors and scientists from around the world who are upholding medical ethics and human rights in response to COVID-19. But lastly, I want to thank you all once again. Make sure that you give this video a thumbs up and don't forget to subscribe to The Last American Vagabond. I'm independent journalist Taylor Hudak and I'll see you all next time.